this is how we're going to do the next eight weeks. Um, we're going to, so like today, I ask that you read Genesis 12, 1 through 14, 24. And so there's about three chapters worth. We are not going to preach verse by verse, breaking down every single aspect of every chapter. I know, it would be fun, but we have to eat and we have to sleep. But um, what we are going to do is, a lot of these are narratives, and, and so there's a story. And being an, an English teacher for 11 years um, and teaching different classrooms, there are parts of the story that you break down, and then there are parts of the story that you look at, and then they, they carry overarching uh, themes and motifs and stuff like that. So um, what we're going to do is in each section, each group of passages, we're going to kind of look at that scope, that arch of, of what's kind of holding it all together. So today, we're really looking at God calls Abram, who will be Abraham in a couple more chapters, but he calls Abram. And you'll actually hear me say Abram and Abraham kind of interspersed because it's one and the same. All right, so we're going to look at how God calls Abram, Abram's obedience and his disobedience. And then ultimately, we're going to end with God blessing Abram in Melchizedek. And then next week, we see that God covenants with Abraham. All right, so that's kind of the, the scope um, of this week. For Abraham and his covenant, though, we're going to be looking at covenants in the Bible. I don't know if y'all have ever like, seen that word and really thought about what a covenant truly is, but, but covenants are all throughout the Bible to the degree that we could say that we have a covenant in God. He um, basically makes a formal agreement uh, with his creation. And so, like, if Brad and I were to make a deal on something, we would shake hands. In effect, in a, a small way, we're covenanting. We agree on these terms. But we have a God of all creation who covenants with his creation. It's very unique. And so with that, we're going to begin with the covenants. And we're, I'm just going to kind of walk you through each covenant that we see in the Bible um, and say, okay, here's why this one's important. Here's what this covenant does for us. All the way up to the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus that's why we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's a picture of the new covenant. So every three to four chapters, it's not verse-by-verse verse breakdown. It's more, here's, here's the scope of what's going on. I can tell you, though, you could take each chapter or each passage, and you could do an in-depth Bible study, and you will be amazed as you keep mining deeper and deeper into it at the goodness of God. But what I want us to do is just have this overarching framework because everything that we preach in the New Testament is rooted back in Genesis. Y'all, it's the beginning of all things. We tend to go that this is the beginning of creation, it's the beginning of the earth, it's the beginning of mankind, it's the beginning of animals, um, plant life. It is, but it's also the beginning of the God who redeems us. And so we are going to, as I'm, even as, as you were reading, you probably had moments where you went, wait a second, that's a lot like this in the New Testament. And you're right. And it's awesome. And we're going to see in Abram, and I'm going to try and point it out to, like we can see in Abram or Abraham, like parallels to what God and Jesus have called us to in the New Testament. Because what God does in fullness in the New Testament, we have in the Old Testament. Like none of this is plan B. It's all plan A from the beginning. It's just complex. I mean, that Adam and Eve would sin did not mess up anything. It's unfortunate but God's plans are never thwarted. They might be delayed through our disobedience. You're going to hear me talk about that a little bit more later. But God's promises are never thwarted. Like, they always are fulfilled. So through man's disobedience, God may delay his promise. Like, that's part of the judgment. But he never is just sitting there going, gosh, they messed that one up. Now what am I going to do? Like, from the beginning, God has had a plan to redeem a people to himself. And we see that. Um, all through Genesis 1 through 11, his patience, his mercy. Yeah, Genesis 1 through 11 is like the history of history, right? That's where we see mankind um, multiplying on the earth. We see sin spreading, but we see the great mercy of God even from the beginning. But it's really in chapter 12 that we see God's full redemptive history begin to play out. And so that's why we kind of took that break. We are back to Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to do 12 through 50 in eight weeks. It's going to be awesome. Okay, I'm not going to lie. This, this kind of stresses me out a little bit. I haven't preached a scope of chapters in this way. So this is brand new. And I was, like, I didn't preach last week, so I always feel rusty coming back from it, from having a week off. And then it's a whole new type of 
considering the scope. And so, man, I'm nervous. I ain't going to lie. But we're going we're gonna to work through Scripture. And what I, what I take hope in is this, that the God who created all things is the God who gave us His Word. His Word will purify and sanctify us. And whatever I can't preach fully, because I know I can't, y'all, God is good. And He gives us all that we need as long as we are faithfully attending to who He is. But this will not be, this will not be the, the verse-by-verse breakdown. So if you're sitting there, you're like, why did He not hit that part? Like, this one so clearly, that is wonderful for group me. I mean, that is awesome for Groomy. Hey, guys, did you notice in these verses this? And like that would be such an incredible use of our GroupMe and how we chat and how we stay connected, just showing each other deeper and deeper into Scripture that God is not a shallow God. He is infinitely deep, and His Word is so much deeper and more complex than we even begin to realize. Okay, so with all that said, we are going to be in Genesis 12. And so you've read about three to four chapters. Next week, you're going to read three to four more and three to four more and three to four more. I will say once we get to like Genesis 37 or 38, I think it's 36 or 37, um, where Joseph comes on the scene and he has a dream and then his father honors him and then they throw his brother throw him into the pit and then he's in Pharaoh's house. Like that's like Genesis 37 through 50. Like we're going to do that week. That's one narrative where we see God's sovereignty. Um, but then we also have like Genesis 22 where it's the sacrifice of Isaac. And that's the only chapter for that week because there are such huge implications there. All right, so the most central overarching truth in all of these passages, if you want to know what's going on in Genesis, it is the God who creates and it is the God who is sovereign. Like that's the overarching message. Through Jacob and Esau, God is sovereign. Through Joseph, God is sovereign. Through Abram, God is sovereign. You can't stop a God who holds all things together. All right, we are going to read Genesis 12, 1 um, through like uh, verse, verse 8 or 9. And then we're going to talk about those, kind of break them down. Then the next big passage that we're going to read is Genesis uh, in Genesis 14. Um, so, so start with me in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, at the Oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he, Abram, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. That's our passage. I mean, what do you do with that? I get it. God called Abram. But that's Abraham's life. That's not ours. I mean, what do you do with that? Y'all, there is a, there's validity to that question. Like whenever we read about these heroes of the faith, like what does that have to do with me? But then there's, there's so much more there too, okay? So Abraham is, is pretty, this is, this is a theological term here, is pretty stinking important, okay? So stinking is your theological term. He's pretty stinking important in the scope of even your life and my life right now. Matthew Henry always has a way for me, of just summarizing all of the richness of the text. So y'all listen to this. Here's why Abram's narrative is important, and then, I'm gonna, then we're going to keep moving through this text. Matthew Henry says, God made choice of Abram. So God chose him. God made choice of Abram and singled him out among his fellow idolaters so that God might reserve a people for himself among whom his true worship might be maintained till the coming of Christ. From henceforward, Abraham and his seed are almost the only subject of the history in the Bible. 
Abram was tried where he loved God better than all and whether he could willingly leave all to go with God. Like, he just kind of sums it up. Y'all realize that, that Abram is who we are, right? Matthew Henry points out that he was called out from fellow idolaters. You and I were idolaters. And Abram was called out as you and I were called out of darkness. And it goes on, so that God might reserve a people for himself. The church, like in all tribe, tongue, nationalities from every time, like God has been reserving a people for himself. And then it goes on, and I never, I never really grasped this. Like it said, Matthew Henry said that from henceforth, from this moment, that, that Abraham and his seed are almost the only subject of the history in the Bible. And I had to sit there and go, wait a second, hang on. But it's true. I want to show you some passages here in just a second. But you and I are of Abraham's seed. Like, it, it's a profound truth that we see in Galatians. And then it says, Abraham, Matthew Henry just pointed out, Abraham was tried whether he loved God better than everything or whether he could willingly leave all to go with God. That's the call of discipleship on our lives. Like, what God has called us to in our lives, he called Abraham to in a very real physical sense. Abraham is one of the first to go, as we are. All right, so, so y'all listen to this. This is something to keep in mind, that as we read Scripture, we get glimpses of God. Like, these are things that I'm looking for as I'm reading. We get glimpses of God, so we read and we're like, oh, there it is. Like, that's, that, that's Revelation 4 and 5. But listen to this. Scripture also gives us sins that we need to forsake. So we're reading along and we're like, oh, there's a sin that I need to forsake. There's a sin I need to confess. I didn't even know it was a sin, but that's a sin. So it gives us glimpses of God and sins to forsake. It gives us promises to claim. Like there's a, a whole lot of pushback on the, the name it, claim it um, preachers, and there should be. They take Scripture and they skew it to the degree that they make it mean what it never was meant to mean. But y'all also get this. You and I were given promises that are from God. And we should proclaim them and live in them like they're good. Romans 8.28, he causes all things to work for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That's not wicked to say, Lord, I know that you have made all things to work good for the good for me who is called according to your purpose. That's not evil, that's faith. But there are promises that you and I, as we go to Scripture, Psalms 23, there is a God who walks with you. You, you claim it like you believe it. That's not any false theology. That's just being faithful. That's what causes Abraham to go, I don't get it, but okay. So we see promises that we get to claim. Y'all gives us prayers that we should pray. Like you and I, we really don't know how to pray. We really don't. I don't even know how to pray. But I, that's why you'll hear me like, as much as I can, I'm quoting scripture back because I'm sitting here talking to a holy God and I'm like, I don't know what to say to you because you terrify me. You know, like, and then we have prayers. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your, like, it's there. Like, just pray it. The Psalms, pray them. And then get this one, examples to follow. So scripture shows us a lot. Glimpses of God, sins to forsake, promises to claim, prayers to pray, examples to follow. Abraham is an example we can follow. So we look at these examples and we look at Paul and we look at Peter and we look at Abraham and we look at Jonah and we look at Job and we have these examples that God has given us where we can say, that's what it's supposed to be like. That's what I want to do. And so they're examples. Every one of us have examples that we follow. And scripture gives us them. Y'all, it's, it's through Abraham and his faith that God became known to the ancient world. And it's through Abraham's offspring that knowledge of God spread throughout the world. And it's through Abraham that we get the nation of Israel. Like, he is he's a pretty stinking major character in the narrative of the Bible. Okay. All right. You also need to realize this. This is something that most people don't grasp with Abraham. But you and I... We are the offspring of Abraham. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. So hold your place in Genesis 12. That's where we're going to camp. But you've got to see some of this in Galatians chapter 3. But you and I are the sons and the daughters of Abraham if we believe and follow God. Like that's how big Abraham is. That all the promises of God are passed on through Abraham's offspring and we are the beneficiaries of it. 
but you and I are sons of Abraham. I do sometimes say sons and daughters, and, and I'm being mindful of the, you know, like I'm preaching to men and women, but, but there's actually something deep to calling you a son of Abraham, even though you're a female. Because the sons inherited all the full riches and rights of the father. And so, so women, sisters in Christ, for me to say that you are a son of Abraham is not to take away from you being a female or a woman, but it's to say you get all the full riches of Abraham and of God by being a son. Like that's what the context of that meant. I try to say daughters just because not everybody understands that. But you and I, we are sons and daughters of the king. We have all the benefits of being the son of the king. We are sons of Abraham. So just keep that in mind as we read Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Here we go. Know then, Galatians 3, 7 through 9, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So real quick check, are you of the faith? Do you have faith in God? I'm asking you. You don't have to reply to me, but do you have faith in God? If so, you are sons of Abraham. And the scripture Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, because we are the Gentiles, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Yeah, when we became Christians, we not only became sons of God, we became sons of Abraham. That's the language of the Bible. That's why Abraham's story means something to us. Y'all, this is your heritage. You're reading about your heritage in, in seeing Abraham in these first pages of the Bible. We were not ethnically changed, but we were spiritually changed that we fall under all the blessings. Galatians 3, 23 through 29, a little bit further. Now before faith came, verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. There's a whole lot there. I'm just going to kind of keep moving past. But once we were obligated to the law, you had to keep the law, to and you had to fulfill the law to be made like righteous and holy um, before God. And it says that that was just keeping us safe until real holiness came, which would be Christ. Like that's what it means there, okay? So go with me. But now that faith, Jesus Christ, has come, and we are no longer under the guardian, which is the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now watch this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Wow. So Abraham's pretty big stinking deal. But to be in Christ is to be an offspring of Abraham. To be an offspring of Abraham is to be in Christ. Like, that's the parallel. At no point is Abraham on equal status with Christ, but all the promises of Abraham have been carried through and made sure in Christ. Okay, so now let's look at this. God calls Abram. The big question I have is maybe what you have, but why does God call Abram? Call Abram? And here's the profound truth. Because he wanted to. Like, he gets to call whom he wants to call. Romans 9.15 says, For God says to Moses, I, God, will have mercy on whom I, God, have mercy on, and I, God, will have compassion on whom I, God, have compassion. God called Abram because he wanted to call Abram. That's it. We tend to, we tend to have a problem with that, but y'all, we don't get to interpret um, God's doings in the light of how we think and feel. There are some who may look at that and say, well, it's not fair that he called Abram and he didn't call them, that he called Noah and, and saved Noah, but he didn't save them, that he calls others. He went, Jesus went to the fishermen and to the tax collectors and he called them by name and he said, you follow me, but he didn't call all them. Y'all, we don't get to interpret God's sovereignty based on how we think and feel. Like he is just and he is good and we need to always operate in this. The default of our hearts was not based on heaven. It's not like we were set for heaven and then God called people out of that holiness and dropped them into hell. God gives us the desires of our hearts. People have hell because they choose hell and not the sun. People have heaven because they see the sun and they want to live for him. But the default destination of who we are was not for heaven, it was for hell. 
So then God's mercy and compassion and grace is that he calls people out of darkness and into his light. That is hard theology. That will mess you up. Like if that like causes you to sit there and go, but God, why? And you don't rest in his sovereignty and that he gets to do whatever he wants to do, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to make those drinking that coffee a little bit more bitter. Why does he call Abram? Because he wants to. I spent way too much time trying to figure out the mercy of God in that way. And I, I argued with people, I fight with people, or I fought with people, and I'm like, no, look at this scripture, look at this scripture, look at this scripture, look at this scripture. He does whatever he wants to do. And, and you know what? There's a huge mystery in this that we weren't meant to comprehend. And we draw too many dividing lines on simply saying, if we would just simply say, because he's God. Now, we do know this. We do know that, that 1 John 4.19 is true. Y'all need to see John 4.19, and, and we need to read um, these. Um, we're doing a lot of jumping to put 12 in context. Look at 1 John 4.19. So you're going to be, not the Gospel of John, but keep going past it. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, seven powerful words that humble us. Some of you figured out the power of two. One of you holds Genesis 12, the other looks up the verse, and then you look over, and then the and so it's called tag team. It's good. First John 4, 19, seven powerful words. We love because he first loved us. That's it. Do you know why you called upon the name of God? Because he called on you by name. Like, unless we just really humbly grasp that. You, know, you didn't get smart enough, you didn't get wise enough, you didn't sit in church long enough, you didn't just one day turn around and go, you know what, it's time to be a Christian. It's he called your name and called you out of darkness, and so you could call upon him. So 1 John 4, 19 is incredibly humbling. But have you ever been in that relationship where you kind of, you know, Chas and I, in a loving way, we, we, we do this, we're like, why did you marry me? You know, like, and, but have you ever had that moment, like you're in a relationship with a friend, um, you're, you're in a relationship with a, with a company or with a spouse, and you're like, why in the world are they with me or am I with them? Like, we, we look at that moment where we just go, why? You know what? You are in a relationship with the God of all creation because he called you to it. Why? Because he did. And some mysteries, they're just so wonderful that we need to rest in them and quit trying to solve the mysteries. They're not ours. But y'all, God has been calling people from the beginning. He called all things into existence. He calls us by name. He calls us into, into living life for him. But, but here's what I love. This one, this one was really unique to me. Go to Joshua. That one's right there in the middle. So you've got to find Joshua, right? If you, have, if you go to Genesis, then you start turning to the right. Find Joshua 24. Because I just want you to see this. Whenever we're considering why did God call Abraham, and we know it's because he can, and he does. It's because he's going to have mercy on whoever he wants. It's because he's done the same thing for us. We see Jesus doing this with the apostles. Um, but also, I'm sitting there going, yeah, but I still, like, Noah, though, was a righteous man. Scripture says that God called Noah because Noah was blameless and righteous. We know that Job suffered because Job was righteous. God said, have you seen my servant Job? He's amazing. And he puts the target on Job. Like, we see that God calls people because they're blameless and righteous. But you know what he did with Abram? Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, quote, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. You know what? Abraham wasn't a righteous man. He was an idolater. He was in a pagan land. Abraham was a pagan. Like Noah was righteous and blameless. He loved the Lord as imperfectly as he was. Job loved the Lord. He was righteous. Abel's sacrifice was honorable to the Lord because he loved the Lord. Abraham was a pagan. And he lived in a pagan land and a pagan culture, and he's worshiped pagan gods. And God said to Abraham, Okay, now you're following me. Like, there was no pre qualification 
for what Abraham was called, except God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion upon whom he will have compassion. Oh my goodness, do you see the parallel in what the gospel does to us? You and I were lost. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were forsaking God. We had no desire of God until God looked into us and looked at us and said, awaken. And he brought our hearts a new light. Okay, so there's a whole lot there. But, but you and I, we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? Because he wanted to. It was, scripture says it was not because of our righteous act. He called the disciples. You know why? Because he wanted to. You know why he called Abraham? Because he wanted to and he did. And you cannot stop a sovereign God. Okay, point two, the call of God. All right, so this one's, this one's pretty straightforward. Here's what God says to him. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so there's a command, two things. What's he told to do? Go. And he says, and you'll be a blessing. A better translation, I didn't know this, is that it's not you will be a blessing, it's you will bless. That's a more accurate interpretation of the language. But go and bless. Like, that's what Abraham is called to do. He's in a pagan land. He's worshiping pagan gods. And now this other god steps in and says, Abraham, go and be a blessing. And I've got some promises for you, but I want you to go. And y'all, we see the same call in Matthew 28. That's a great commission. What did Jesus call us to do? Go. Here's what it says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, Jesus saying in verse 18, I, I get to do everything I want to do. It's all mine. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You put the call of Abraham next to the call of the Great Commission, and you see a whole lot of parallels. You know what God's people have always been called to do? Go. Like we've always been called to go. And a better understanding of Matthew 28, you've probably heard me say this over and over, is not like go like to point B over there and then begin, but it's as you go. And we see that in Abraham. Like as he goes, he is to be a blessing to everyone. And we see that start to play out. As you're reading Genesis and you're reading about Abraham, you're going to see that he is blessing those who are around him. And his numbers keep getting added to. It's, it's pretty incredible. But he is called to go and be a blessing. And y'all, what God has called Abraham, or what he called Abraham to do is exactly what he's called us to do. Whenever we go with God and for God, we are a blessing to others. And, that, and, and we see that that's what Christ does through us. Okay, there are three promises in this call. Like, if Abraham, if you will go, then here are three promises. I will make of you a great nation. And I will make of you a great name. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Three promises. Look at what begins to happen. The great nation we know becomes, we get Israel. Abraham goes. And as a result, down the line, though he never sees it, Israel is born. And you and I sit here today as a result of this call too. I will bless you and make your name great. Y'all, Abraham's great is known throughout all of history to the degree that we saw it in Galatians. We see it in Hebrews 11. We see Abraham spoken about in faith and in, in honor throughout Scripture because he followed God. So God is faithful to his promises. He makes a great nation. He makes a great name. And then he does bless those. But y'all, listen to this. The greatest blessing that comes to all the earth is not in Abraham's presence, but in the fullness of Christ. You got to see this. Okay, we're going to jump again. Matthew chapter 1. You just have to see the greatest blessing. You're going to see through Genesis that Abraham, as he's around people, if they bless him, they become blessed. If they curse him, then they become cursed. But those are just in part. Matthew chapter 1 shows us the blessing 
that's going to be to every family throughout all the world, throughout all time. And it's right here. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1, 1 through 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So if you want the bloodline of Jesus Christ, here it goes. It says that he was the son of David, he was the son of Abraham. In a blood sense. Like the blood of Abraham all the way through. Okay, says, verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And that continues on all the way to verse 16. So jump, jump your eyes to verse 16. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. From Abraham comes the promised one of Genesis 3.15. So remember like we read in, uh, of Adam and Eve and their creation and then the, the fall and then in Genesis 3.15, God prophesies and, and promises the serpent that there is a promised one who's coming and he is going to crush your head. Like you will not stop the promised one. And throughout all of the Old Testament, that's what everybody's looking forward to. They keep waiting on the king. They keep waiting on the promised one. They keep waiting on the one that God says he's coming, y'all. And that happens through Abraham, his bloodline secure all the way to Christ. And in Christ, all of creation has the means by which to be redeemed. The greatest blessing through Abraham is not in Israel, it's in Christ. You and I sit here because of that. So the promise is true. Okay, now, next point. Abraham responds in obedience. Look at how Abraham responds. Okay, we're back in Genesis 12.4. But Genesis 12.4, yeah, we, we can't miss this. God says, Go. And what does Abraham, Abraham do? He thinks about everything he's going to leave. He's like, God, are you, are you sure? Like, I mean, do I have to go? Can't I? You know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to do some, like, six months planning here and make sure I have all the funds and everything secure. And I want to make sure that I have a plan for success, that there's a, a place where I'm going. Y'all, that, no, he goes. Look at Genesis 12, 4. God says, go. Look at these three words. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him. What kind of faith is that? That you are a pagan in a pagan culture worshiping pagan gods and this other God steps in and goes, you need to go. And I'm going to send you to a place you've never seen and, to, and you have no idea where you're going. But as you go, you just need to know that I'm going to go with you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to keep you and I'm going to bless everybody else who blesses you. I, you're just going to go. And Abram goes, okay. And he just goes. Y'all, the, the remarkable faith there is amazing. I wouldn't have done that. You and I have moments where we are called in life to go do something, and I do this. Okay, God, like, I, I see what you're doing, but if you could also just kind of confirm that in this way. And if you could show me that the door is open, but if you also want to shut the door, but like, just, like, I, I tend to go into this rationalizing. And faith is rational, whenever we worship God. But at the same time, God also calls us to step out of our comfort zone. He wants you to be uncomfortable and in a spot where you are weak because he will be made strong. People will tell me all the time, oh, Ricky, God won't put any more on you than you can stand. Yes, he will. Like he won't let any temptation overcome you that is not common to man. Like we can rest in him. He won't let you be tempted beyond means of escape. But he will absolutely, biblically, put you into a situation for which you are ill-equipped. Why? Because then all you have is him and that's all you need. And he wants you to get that. Like, will God give you more than you can, than you can comprehend and, and, and handle? Biblically, lovingly, pastorally, absolutely, because he loves you. You don't need the comfort and the security of the world. You only need the God who called it into being. So he will give you more than you can handle. And that's comforting. Because whenever you can't handle it, you cry out to your God and he says, okay, now look what I can do. I think that Abraham was given that faith by God. Abraham hears God call him. He hears the go and he just goes, okay. Like he's given that faith by God. All right, but I also want you to see this. Abraham's not perfect. Okay, if you read the chapters and you read chapter 13 and Abraham lies and he deceives others. Now, I will say it's a half truth. Right? He doesn't completely fully lie. He just only halfway lies. But whenever they get to Egypt, <clears throat> and Abraham does this quite a bit, Abraham says, you're beautiful. And because you're beautiful, 
I'm afraid they're going to kill me, so you need to just tell them that you're my sister. Right? Do you all remember that? And I remember reading that for so many years going, but why he's such a good man? He's just a man. He's just weak and human. And in this moment, he does not trust God. Abraham lies to protect himself. Sarah really is his wife, and she really is his sister. She's a half-sister. And so whenever he says, tell them you're my sister, he's not fully lying. He's just kind of telling a half-truth. But y'all, a half-truth is an untruth. And so God does not delight in this. I just want you to see that Abraham acts in disobedience because he has a lack of faith. He looks at the situation. He says, okay, God has called me. And if God has called me, then I need to make sure that my calling is sure. So Abraham begins to work on his own behalf. It's a moment of weakness. He looks around and he says, the only way for this to come to fruition, for God's promises to be true, is if I do this and I act dishonestly. So Abraham, fearing this, he's going to tell a half-truth. But here's what I want you to see. God does not delight in that. In fact, God sends, God sends plagues and, and discomfort on the Pharaoh and opens the Pharaoh's eyes. And Pharaoh's upset. He goes to Abraham. He's like, why in the world would you do this? Like, why would you? And then... He blesses Abraham, and Abraham gets to leave safely with more. Why? Because the promise is true. Those who bless you, I will bless. And if you just walk in my way, so, so Abraham is disobedient. He's not perfect. Don't like uphold him as holier than thou, but I will say he's still really important. But this is one of those where you see this. God's promises are never thwarted by our sin. It doesn't nullify the promises of God. He will delay them. This journey could have gone much quicker and much smoother. But, but just understand this, because I always wonder, what if Abraham had just refused the call? What if Abraham said, I'm not going to do it? Would there be Israel? Would there be the great promise of Christ? Would there be us sitting here? Yes, because man doesn't get to stop the promises of God. If Abraham had been disobedient, then God would have called somebody who was obedient. There's a mystery there. Okay, I'm going to keep going a little bit quicker. Okay, but look at the obedience of Abraham. This is the example we follow. What does he do? He leaves his homeland, doesn't know where he's going. He also is traveling with Lot. This is the Lot that we're, gonna, that we're so, comfortable, or so familiar with in Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and Lot's wife. This is the same Lot. They were kinsmen. They were, they were family. And so Lot is traveling with Abraham. They get to a point where God says, this is all going to be your land. But Abraham's standing up there. They're on this hill, and he says, Lot, you pick. And it says that Lot looks and he sees the lush land and it's almost like the Garden of Eden again. And Lot goes, that's mine. And Abraham says, okay, I'll take this. I think that there's a deep faith there that, that God, if you go back and read, it's after that that God comes back and he says to Abraham, okay, now. Now look left and right, east, west, north, south. It's all going to be yours. Like it's all yours. Like everything that you see, everything that your eye touches, that's actually going to be yours. There's deep faith to trust other people because we know that God's promises are true. So we see his faith. He leaves homeland. He, he lets Lot choose the land. He also um, trusts God in the decree that um, he's been blessed by God so that he fights five kings. I don't know if you've caught this. We're moving into to Genesis 14 right now. But it says that there are four kings, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, being, and, and then there's two other kings. And then it lists out five other kings. So these five kings come and fight with these four kings. These five kings overcome Sodom and Gomorrah and these four kings. They defeat them entirely. And do you know who overcomes and defeats five kings? Abraham with 318 men. Like, when you have God, it doesn't matter how many kings and how many armies and how many forces you are fighting. When God fights for you and with you, you can contend with any army. And so that's what we see actually play out. His faith is so deep in God that he goes to fight five kings and their armies and he wins. And then the great faith, he also refuses to take spoils from the king of Sodom. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, from the king of Sodom in verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 14. Chapter 14, the king of Sodom says, here, I'll give you spoils. And Abram's like, I don't need it because I got God. Now, there's a faith there. You know, we, we can read that and just say, man, Abraham is, he's awesome. He's good. I wish I could have the faith of Abraham. But the truth is, like he, was, he was weak. He had his weaknesses. He was just sustained by faith. We do need a faith like this. I think that that's why God gives us Scripture so that we can see that nothing in Abraham's story in a worldly sense makes any sense. It makes no sense whatsoever that you're living in a land and God says, I know you're comfortable here. I need you to go somewhere else where you don't even know you're going. <clears throat> Will you go? 
<clears throat> at the same time gets to that and, and it makes no sense that, that he sees all the land and he has the, the promises of God on his side and he refuses to take this one for himself. But he allows God to sovereignly work in this ordeal. It makes no sense. It makes no sense that he is here as one man with his own clan and his own tribe and he sees these vast armies that have overthrown others and yet he says, but this is what I'm called to do. It makes no sense. It makes no sense that the king of Sodom would say, I am so impressed by you and I want to honor you by giving you of my wealth and for Abraham to go, I'm good actually, I don't need that because I mean it makes no sense, it's all faith. You and I need to read the heroes and the hallmarks of faith to encourage us that in this world your faith will not make sense. It's faith working in us through Christ. If God has called all things into being and he ordains all things, then he will sustain you. It's not a matter of God's faithfulness, it's our own faithfulness. And when we fail like Abraham did, God still sustains us. But you need to know that when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord in your life, then all the promises of God are true. Romans 8.28, absolutely true. Everything will work for your good. All the tears and all the confusion, all the hurt, all the, the mysteries, everything works for your good. And then Psalm 23, the shepherd, he's always with you even in the darkest valleys. Like that becomes true in your faith. And then Psalm 1, he will make you like a tree planted by streams of water that will bear fruit in its season. All the promises of God are true in Christ. When God called Abraham, Abraham could respond in two ways, obedience or disobedience. Same is true of us. When God calls us, we will respond in obedience or disobedience. But I want it to be said of me. So Abram went. When God calls, so Ricky went. Whatever he calls you to do this week, so you go. All right, last thing, Melchizedek. This, this is really cool scene. We've got to read this one. Genesis 14, 17 through 24, and then we're going we're gonna, to, this is our last part, and then we're going to conclude. I don't know if y'all have ever looked at this and looked at Melchizedek. That's why I want you to look at it. This is really, really awesome. Okay, so here's what it says. Genesis 14, 17 through 24. So the God who called him in Genesis 12, y'all, I'm just telling you, is the God who blesses him in Genesis 14. Watch what happens. After his return from the defeat of and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He, Melchizedek, was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Y'all, why in the world is this significant? Because Melchizedek is a mysterious figure in the Bible. He's going to show up here and then he's going to disappear. And you might even be thinking, oh, but it says he's a priest. Like we read about priests in the Old Testament. This is before the priests are instituted in the law. Like here is just a mysterious priest who comes on the scene out of nowhere and disappears into nowhere. You have to go to Hebrews 7. You have to. Like, it's amazing. Like, this is a moment, I think, whenever it all comes together, then I think that there's just kind of this, oh my goodness, my God is with us. If we're not careful, then we read Genesis and we see all the human components of it because it's a lot about the patriarchs. What I want you to see is God always moving through the patriarchs and with the patriarchs. So Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And I promise we are, we are circling the plane here. Hebrews 7, 1 through 4 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now watch this. 
he, Melchizedek, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. All right, y'all can flip back to Genesis chapter 12. Y'all here, here's a priest and a king named Melchizedek who has no record of a mother or a father. He has no record of birth or death, and yet he is considered a priest of God, and he is also considered the king of righteousness, and he just appears on the scene. I really am, I jokingly said stinking was the theological term of the day, but there really is another one. It's called a theophany. Theo means God, and then the, the, the suffix at the end is kind of the, the, the vision or the image of. So this is a theophany. Uh, Theo being God, here's an image of God. Melchizedek is an image of God. It is somehow um, that, that God was seen in the flesh before Christ was ever born. So Abraham, it may be, y'all, uh, let, let, let me press in that a little bit more. If he's the king of righteousness and the prince of peace, or the king of peace, like that's who, that's by name who Melchizedek is then who else bears those titles to be the king of righteousness and the king of peace or the prince of peace? Jesus. So like there's this, there's this miracle moment where God is in the flesh, a righteous king of peace, a high priest of God. Like here is, in a way, Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ was ever born. It may be that Abraham has been given a glimpse of the God whom he serves. He gets to see Jesus in the flesh before Jesus was ever born. We don't understand that because time makes no sense to us. But you got to remember, God created time. He holds time together and he can step in whatever he wants. But this Melchizedek is a theophany. He is God in the flesh blessing Abraham after this great battle because of Abraham's faith. Why does Abraham... What a, uh, I'm sorry, I, I got a little ahead of myself. Um... Look at this principle, though. So Abraham recognizes that this, this priest and this king, this Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, is something worthy and greater than he is. And what does he do? He gives a tenth of his spoils. Okay, remember Genesis is kind of the beginning of all things. What do you hear the principle of already? Tithing and offerings. This is before the new temple. I'm sorry, this is before... The, the temple is built. This is before the temple tax. This is before the Levitical priesthood. There's a lot of bad teaching on tithing. And that's not what this passage is about. Here's the heart of tithing. And I think that this is what the passage is about. A biblical understanding of tithe is that it is an act of worship. It is a recognition of God's worth from his provision toward us. Like it's to see one who is greater and more glorious than us and give something of what we have because they're worthy of it. Like that's what the tithe is about. That's what Abram does here. He sees Melchizedek and he's like, you are greater and more worthy than anything that I am or ever will be. And you deserve anything of all that I have. Abraham, who has a blessing of God and who is going to be carried by God, who just overcame five kings. He doesn't see his greatness. He sees the greatness of Melchizedek and he says, you are something that is worthy. Here's a tenth of all that I have. Y'all, that's the heart of tithe. I don't even think it's the 10%. Some will go in and say, oh, it's actually 23 because it's all about the temple tax. And, and, and you know what it is? It's seeing something that is infinitely more worthy and saying, this is a portion of what I have because you've already given it to me. So we see that kind of sown right there. But why does Abraham give to Melchizedek? Because he sees one who is more worthy than himself and he wants to honor him some way. Look at what Melchizedek reminds him. It's a great reminder for us as we leave this place. Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Verse 20, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Your, y'all, Abraham, he didn't win by his own might, nor do you and I. Our flesh dangerously boasts in things that we did not even do. Melchizedek reminds him, you know what, Abraham? Bless God because he gave you victory. Now, there's only one hero of the story. It's not Abraham, it's not Jacob, it's not Joseph, and it's not you and me. 
It's God. And he will do what he wants to do sovereignly throughout all creation. So, y'all, um, Melchizedek, he disappears from the scene. We hear of him again in Hebrews. But he was there for a moment. God blessing. I really think it's a theophany. God blessing Abraham. So all this comes down to God calls Abraham. Abraham responds in obedience. And then God blesses Abraham. Y'all, if we believe in Christ, then we really do have some parallels to Abraham. Called out of darkness into light. Given promises by God if we go and when we go. And we just walk in them. But whereas he was heading for a physical promised land, like right over there and and he was going physically in this world, we are spiritually headed for a promised land that we will dwell in. Y'all, we will see Abraham face to face. But more than that, we will see God face to face. And every tear that you have, Scripture says, he will wipe it away. All the comfort that you need that you can't get in this world, he will provide it. We will be in his presence forevermore. Y'all, we should marvel at the goodness of God towards Abraham and that he would sustain him and the goodness of God towards us we love because he first loved us. We called on him because he first called us. We are offspring of Abraham and Christ because of God's goodness towards us. And we just get to see how God does this from beginning to the end. Jesus says, behold, I am coming back. I stand at the door. Like I'm right there. And what we get in Genesis is him starting all those works that we begin to more fully understand now. Y'all, let's pray. Lord God, you are, you're good. And I pray that what we do as we move through Genesis is not, not just a, a scholarly activity, Lord, but that it really is, Lord, us marveling that, that you're a sovereign God. You not only called all things into existence, you stepped into your world, and you call us by faith to walk in you. I pray that we are encouraged by the faith of Abraham, that he's an example for us to follow, but Lord, I don't want to look like Abraham and I don't want Abraham's faith. I want the faith of Christ and I want to live for you. Lord, thank you that you're good to us. Thank you for the, the example of Abraham. Lord, tell, teach us to trust you to the degree that we go. Lord, we love you.